1: 11 of the first series of the Core Curriculum. This is a show on the Christian Humanist Radio Network where we read slowly through uh, the Columbia University Core Curriculum Great Books program. Uh, which, I, you know, if you're just starting with this episode, I would highly recommend you go back and listen to the ten that come before this. Because what we're talking about today is the last two books of Homer's Iliad. This will be the last episode of this series of the core curriculum. And then sometime in the not-too-distant future, we're going to begin series two, which will be on Plato's Republic. Um, But let's deal with the topic at hand uh, for now. Uh, Joining me today is Coyle Neal. You know him from the City of Man podcast. He's coming to you, I I believe, from Bolivar, Missouri. Is that right? Uh,
2: Yeah, it's early in the morning, but I I think that's right.
1: Well, you know, you could be on vacation. I don't know what you professor types do during the summer.
2: We sit around and drink margaritas. Well, Baptist College, so we we drink uh, virgin margaritas and watch TV.
1: Virgin margaritas is just frozen lime juice. Is that right?
2: I, I I guess so. Um, we, you know, put the bottle of tequila next to it.
1: I see. Yeah, in in the hopes that some of it'll, yeah, uh, osmos through the air. As you say, it's early in the morning. I'm having trouble too. Also joining us is another person you know from the city of man, Jordan Poss, who is. Oh, Jordan, I forgot to ask you where you're uh, where you're recording from this morning.
0: Just like on oh, City I of am. Man. <laughs> it's all good. Uh, I am at Piedmont Technical College in Greenwood South Carolina
1: Greenwood I was gonna say Greenville and I knew that wasn't right well
0: yeah it, it's confusing there's I, I think everything in the upstate is named after Nathaniel Green sure
1: so. sure, sure. Well, I and Georgia too there's a lot of there's a lot of greens in Georgia and Mississippi mm-hmm. and every, everywhere else <laughs> well uh, thanks again for for listening thanks for coming on the show uh, I guess we'll just dive right in um, we are dealing with the post death of hector books of the iliad and it seems to me that these these books are about three major themes Uh, one is grief which a great deal of the iliad has been about one is wrath which the the poem begins with rather famously and the the third one um, is something i've been waiting for for a long time in this poem uh which is mercy uh so Greek culture, as far as I can tell, and, and both of you guys are probably closer to experts than I am on on ancient virtues, but mercy doesn't seem to be one to me, at least in the Iliad and the Odyssey. There's, there's a number of places in this poem where you have people essentially begging for mercy and uh, our heroes uh, just refusing to provide it, just cutting their heads off and doing whatever other grisly things they're going to do rather than showing mercy. But here... In books 23 and 24, you get acts that I think maybe you could call mercy. So um, 24 is probably the easiest one to talk about. Priam comes and begs for Hector's body back, and uh, Achilles gives it to him, uh, which I I think you could at least in some ways code as him being merciful to to Priam, although um, it's more complicated than that in a lot of ways. Book 23 has to do with the, the... uh, the games that take place at Patroclus's funeral, and there is there is a, a, a race on horseback, wherein Menelaus uh, shows something close to mercy to this guy Antilochus, who beats him in in the race, uh, and Menelaus feels like he doesn't deserve to win. Um, So, Antilicus apologizes so that Menelaus won't cut his head off or do whatever grisly thing he's going to do. And then um, Menelaus says the following. This is line 621 of the Lombardo translation. Antilicus, I accept your apology. Although I am angry, for never before have you been out of line or malicious. This time your youth got the better of you. Just don't try to outsmart your betters again. There are very few men in this army who could have won me over like that, but you have gone through a lot for my sake, as have your brave father and brother. So I not only accept your apology, but I will give you the mayor, which is mine by rights, to the end that everyone here may know that my heart is not overbearing or hard. That was a long uh, wind-up to my question, which is, is it reasonable to talk about either of these two episodes as being exhibitions of mercy? Uh,
2: I, I, I mean, it, it looks like mercy. I, I think we probably don't want to read our Christian view of mercy in, of sort of you know, unmerited uh, forgiveness. Uh, I, I think the idea is there's always some merit on the side of the recipient uh, in, in the Iliad. Uh, there, there's always something about the person that uh, is worthy of being given mercy.
0: So mercy, but not grace.
2: Yeah. Um, and honestly, I'd have to, I'd have to think more about that. Uh, I, I definitely read, uh, this, uh, at least of book, uh, book 23, that, that entire stretch, uh, where they're awarding the prizes at the end of it. Um, I read that as one kind of long reflection on how wrath is avoided so uh, over and over and over, we have we have people who are about to be angry, and and basically the same setup is in book one, right? Where this prize is going to go to someone, and maybe it should have gone to someone else, uh, and of 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 all people, it's uh, it's Achilles who is both the person doing that, like taking the prize from someone and giving it to someone else, uh, and the person who is stemming the wrath of the person when it starts.
1: Yeah, well and the, and the very notion of merit in those games is interesting, right? Because with the um with the horse race, the wrong person wins and as you say, Achilles just kind of gives it to the person who should have won. It's it's like the the outcome of these games was a foregone conclusion, and if it doesn't match up to what the foregone conclusion was, Menelaus's horses are better bred than Antilochus's. So obviously, uh, when Antilochus wins, he shouldn't have won, and Menelaus just deserves the prize. Why even have the games at a certain point?
2: Um, well, I think uh, if, if I remember right, Antilochus also did a sort of a dirty trick on the racetrack. I don't remember it like he pulled in front of Menelaus and then hit the brakes or some, something like that. Like one of those uh, one of those things that you're not supposed to do, but maybe it's not technically a foul. Uh, so I think there was some. Uh, legitimate objection uh so the uh, the passage that you read instead of uh outsmarting uh your betters mine says cheating your superiors uh interesting that, yeah that cheat carries that extra punch of no you you actually did steal this thing
1: hmm. but it's worth pointing out Antilochus doesn't even win first place right he wins um he wins second who wins first I have so much trouble with all these names.
2: Uh, Diomedes, wasn't it?
1: Is it? Is it yeah, the Race. Yeah. But the best man is coming in last. He should get a prize, the prize for second. But let Tydeus, his son, take first place. So the right. other guy who should have won, uh, the gods interfere, isn't that right? Right. Um, and so he comes in last place, and and so. Achilles takes the prize that's supposed to go to the second place winner and gives it to the the person who came in last because oh well he should have won. It would be an international scandal if the actual Olympics worked like this, right?
2: <laughs> right. Instead of through bribing the judges and being from the right country and so on.
0: Sure. Yeah, there's that. I don't but know. I this, mean, well, this,
1: this isn't this isn't one that even really has judges, right? I, I, mean, I guess it does because Achilles takes it. Yeah, but this is, this this is one that more or less should be objective
2: mm-hmm right uh, and yeah with without the gods you know sort of poking their noses into the race uh, it's uh if we didn't know that i suppose it would look a lot more objective
1: but but again I, I it seems to me that what they're expecting from this uh from this competition is that the person they knew would win would win There there shouldn't be any surprises because people are just kind of naturally built into a hierarchy and and whoever whoever's at the top of that hierarchy ought to win, and if he doesn't well, it's because the god god's interfered, and we'd better give him the prize anyway
2: right <laughs> right. and I mean I think there's something yeah i i I was thinking about that more actually in the in the book before this where with the uh, the death of hector right uh uh in some ways the Iliad is uh the Greeks who have this you know, dream team of, of heroes, uh, against the Trojans who have Hector. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's, there, there is a hierarchy there, but at least on the Greeks, there's like 20 people in the top tier and trying to, trying to divide them up. Maybe it was, maybe it was a fair race as long as it's, uh, Diomedes versus Menelaus versus, uh, uh, you know, Ajax versus whoever else. I don't even remember who all was, who all was in the race, uh, and we have this this b lister uh Antilochus who who beats one of the a team for lack of a better way to to divide them up
1: right and 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 thus does what Hector fails to do, right because um Hector throughout the last few books of the Iliad tells Achilles, you know you're stronger than me, you're better than me, but uh watch out, I might win after all, right. But now, I mean, if if this really is a parallel, it seems like even if Hector had won, he wouldn't have won. Right. The, the race does, in fact, go to the strong, even if the strong doesn't take it swift. I guess the race doesn't would go to the swift rather than the strong.
2: Yeah, and, and I, I think the uh, the thing a thing to remember is that the point of the games isn't just kind of dividing into winners and losers. It, it ties into that that other thing that you uh, the other the other topic here, uh, grief, right? These are uh, primarily conventional ways to deal with the grief of someone passing away uh so the uh the actual outcome isn't necessarily as important as the fact that uh this is a way to channel your grief into something that's uh structured Uh, and i don't i don't have like the psychological language to to know what the right terms for all of that are but this is uh uh sort of their you know their their equivalent of both the funeral and the wake and all of the other stuff that goes on after someone we care about passes away
1: yeah it's what's interesting the culture is so martial that the only way they can think of to deal with their grief is to beat each other up like literally there's there's I, I, i think it's a uh is it just the boxing match where the guy comes awful close to killing the other guy
2: it's yeah. like the two two biggest guys in the army wail on each other,
1: uh, and and I guess it's good for everybody else to watch this, and that makes them feel better too, despite the fact that they've just watched hundreds of their of their countrymen be slaughtered on the battlefield, and are no doubt I mean because you know this war is not over, um they're they're about to watch hundreds more be slaughtered. It it makes them feel better to beat each other up.
2: Well, and I I missed it the last couple of times I I read this, but uh. These games start off with Achilles killing and cutting up a bunch of Trojans. Well, sure, mm-hmm. uh, and I uh, I just apparently missed that in the past. So uh, there there's you know violence even at the beginning of it. Uh, but again, there there's also the ritual component of it, right? The uh, this is uh, something something again that we we don't have in Book One where you have uh, a problem and this deep emotional reaction to a problem. Uh, and then the, uh, the customary conventional way to deal with that, that, that doesn't exist at book one, which is why we have you know 23 more books after that. Uh, here, here, custom and convention are doing their thing again. Uh, there's this restoration of sort of right order in the way things should be.
1: I like that. Mm. What do you guys have? I mean, 24 is is the important one here, I suspect. Do you guys have anything else you want to say about the games?
0: I don't think I have anything to add to what Coyle said about especially, – especially the way the uh, wrath uh, that could potentially crop up is subsumed in grief. And uh, again, the, the return of those customary forms kind of looks like mercy. Um, to, to me, especially in the Menelaus case, because his quote-unquote mercy is so public, it looks to me more like a kind of calculated magnanimity um it's like hey you know i'm not going to make a big deal out of this i'm not even going to talk about it even though i'm currently talking about it but i just want to you know we'll, we'll we'll smooth all this over you know yield uh yield whatever you know um that's that's what it looks more like to me so i think i think when we talk about priam and achilles the fact that the initial meeting that they have is more or less in private becomes important i think
2: right well, and obviously, as these funeral games for Patroclus are going on, uh, Hector's body is laying there without any of this stuff being done
0: for him. Right. 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 It's, it's sort of. the be... – well, up to the. It's up to the. It's, it, I was just going to say, it's up to the gods to do anything for his corpse for over a week. Right.
1: They keep it from. They keep it from rotting.
0: Hmm.
1: Well, before we move on to Priam, I I want to point out one of the rare moments of comedy in the Iliad, and I don't know how I don't know any other way to read this than as comedy. This is during the foot race. So you have the foot races between Odysseus and um who who was pardoned by Menelaus during the uh, chariot race, and uh, little Ajax. Uh, Lombardo calls the other Ajax big Ajax. He usually calls little Ajax Oilian ajax because of who his father was i guess his name is oilius anyway so they're running this foot race and odysseus is losing and he prays to athena that something will happen to allow him to win and and here's what here's what lombardo says this is right around right around line 800 um palace athena heard his prayer and made his feet and hands light but when they were about to make their final spurt Ajax slipped as he ran, Athena's doing, in the dung that was left from all the bulls Achilles had sacrificed in Patroclus' honor. Odysseus, finishing first, collected the bowl. and glorious Ajax, spewing out dung from his nostrils and mouth, took the ox. With his hand on one horn, he addressed the crowd. Sh The goddess tripped me up. It's like she's Odysseus' mother, always at his side. That's got to be comedy, right? I mean, you—I uh, don't know how much Lombardo is adding to this in terms of how it's presented, but this image of Ajax slipping on and into um, bull feces and then yelling uh, what he's just slipped into, which is also a, a oath, is—I uh, couldn't help but think of Biff Tannen from Back to the Future.
0: <laughs> That's uh, what I was about to say. <laughs> Fagels has him spitting out the dung and sputtering to his comrades. And yeah, then he, everyone laughs at him, so it, it's mm-hmm. clearly a joke.
1: What what does he yell? Does he yell uh, that uh, word? In
0: fagels it's foul by heaven.
1: <laughs> Which I, I guess maintains the joke, but it's not quite as uh earthy.
0: Right. <laughs> You're using Fagels too. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. How funny there's there's so there's so little levity in the Iliad that 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 scene really stuck out to me, especially after i mean book twenty two is such high drama and book twenty four is such high drama that in some ways this this incident at the games represents book twenty three as a whole in the sense that it's kind of a what the TV trump's folks call a uh, breather episode
2: right it's also
0: uh, it's also I think a representation and I was thinking of this earlier talking about all the uh, all the opportunities people have to be mad and pass up—it's uh, almost like the now that Hector is dead and Achilles has more or less gotten his way. That if you've ever been really, really angry, that kind of like denouement—you feel as you've finally done something, work that out, however however bad you uh, however bad you feel guilt-wise afterward. there, that that mus- even muscular relaxation. It's almost as if the entire army. Has sort of spent its wrath just in Achilles killing Hector, and so the disease of wrath that has been infecting them is sort of being purged away. Yeah, uh, it's almost a it's almost a my the games are almost a microcosm of the war as a whole, it's especially in the fact that the gods intervene, and so it doesn't like you said it almost doesn't matter that they play the games, because you know why even fight right. the war.
1: And why do the
2: gods care about the games anyway? I, I mean, it's it is up there with warfare in terms of sort of daily importance for I mean at least for the Greeks, right? I mean, they're they're the they're the people with the Olympics. Uh, not that Americans can you know cast much aspersions on that, given the importance of professional sports for us. But if we were, you know, designing, if we were designing gods for Americans based on the stuff we care about there, there would definitely be gods associated with, you know, football.
1: That's true. And people, I mean, people do pray to win the game or whatever.
2: Or after they make a touchdown or yeah.
1: Maybe they thank God. Oh, or... no, Jay- do you remember Deion Sanders used to cross himself when he got to first base.
0: <laughs>
2: uh, something like that. Yeah. <laughs>
0: I was going to say James K. A. Smith even uses football games as an example of kind of uh, unconscious or subconscious worship. Um, it's it's a it's a religious experience.
1: He connects it to the military too.
0: Yeah, yeah. The military is kind of the gods that you're sort of worshiping at the football game.
1: On on Thanksgiving, if you right. if you uh, if you watch football on Thanksgiving, you'll see that the the person we're thankful to is not God, who couldn't be mentioned in such a secular quote unquote secular event. It's the military, mm-hmm. which is, um, I, I, I think, uh, for, for Smith, who was raised in Canada, seems weird.
0: Right. Yeah, the connection between sports and warfare in Greece is really deep. Uh, something y'all said earlier reminded me. I've got this right here. Uh, so I got a book years and years ago called Soldiers and Ghosts, A History of Battle in Classical Antiquity, uh, which is really, really good. The early chapters uh, are actually about kind of – warfare in the homeric age uh and i got it used so it had somebody else's marginalia in it and i actually found a useful piece of marginalia for the first time uh so the the, the author linden says here heroes and homer uh heroes compete in public performance in war and battle performance which is constantly evaluated by their peers a hero's high birth and high deeds in the past create a favorable expectation in the eyes of observers but the hero must uphold his reputation by the continual display of merit in action. Heroes compete in the display of virtues, a reti, which includes strength, skill, physical courage, fleetness of foot, but also cunning and wisdom and persuasiveness and counsel. Uh, and goes on from there. Uh, whoever previously owned this book bracketed that and in the margins wrote sports, <laughs> which uh, cha- it, it, I'm, I'm not exaggerating. It completely changed the way I see Homeric and later Greek warfare. Because uh, you've got those expectations you've built. You know, if if the ancient Greeks had baseball cards, <laughs> they'd have lists of kills on the back.
1: Hmm. I wonder if anybody has written about the American football player and I, I think he was a Marine. He died in Iraq. Pat Tillman in this context. Do you, you guys remember the Pat Tillman hmm. story? Yeah,
2: oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The
1: Republicans kind of latched onto him because you know um he was a he was a war hero, but he was a major critic of the of the iraq war uh I believe uh, I could be making that up, but I think he was um and and so he he seems kind of achilles like in that mm. except I think his uh, disagreement was a little more principled than uh george George w. Bush took away my uh my sex life. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Or you know his Heisman trophy or whatever.
1: Sure. Well, shall we move on to book twenty-four?
0: Sounds good. Yeah.
1: The scene with Priam uh, coming by nightfall to beg for Hector's body back from the man who killed it is, I, I think, justly one of the most famous in all of uh, all of Western literature. But it. It is, it is easy, as you said earlier, Coyle, to make that into something it's not from the Christian perspective, because it's it's not mercy the way we think of, right? It's not that Achilles um, has some sort of rapprochement with, with Priam. It's not that they like each other. It's not that they um, are forgiving each other, because Achilles says, essentially, get out of here before I change your mind and kill you, or change my mind and kill you. Um, what ought we to make of of him granting priam's request uh,
2: again I, I would look at this as uh, kind of a and maybe this is me me as a conservative reading this but this is uh, the restoration of a custom that ought to have been respected all along uh and and of course there, i mean there's the easy answer is zeus tells achilles to do it or he's going to kill him uh but uh uh, I think there's also the the point that all of that stuff that Achilles has just done for Patroclus ought also to be done for Hector, uh, and uh, Achilles' wrath has gotten in the way of that uh, when it shifts from Agamemnon to Hector, uh, and now Priam shows up and makes the pitch that look this uh, this relationship between a father and a son is important uh, and ought to be respected, and uh, your you know. And he appeals to Achilles' relationship with his own father, and that's that's really what clinches it, right? I mean, Achilles starts thinking about his father and uh, that traditional relationship, and and uh, even though he's already been told by Zeus to uh, to turn the body over, uh, we're we're told that that also affects him. So again, there's this this restoration of a proper order, right? The the, the putting things back where they're supposed to be, uh, and making a proper uh, a proper um, Oh, uh, whatever, whatever the right word is, right? Obeying convention, uh, doing that in, in the right way. Uh, I, I don't remember what episode it is, but I, I know uh, in one of these someone has mentioned Antigone uh, as a parallel to this, uh, and I think there's sort of the same issue going on there, right? Uh, what what do you do when uh, when the convention is being disregarded for reasons that are beyond your control? Uh, same same sort of question here for for Priam
0: it's achilles for the first and only time showing what the romans would call pietas right right
1: yeah say more about that word jordan
0: uh yeah so pietas it's the root of our word piety but it it's it's been corrupted quite a lot in in the in between pietas uh, it's if wrath is the theme of uh the iliad pietas is one of the major themes if if not the theme of the aeneid uh showing you know, kind of a deep chasm between Homer and Virgil. Uh, essentially, it is ancestral respect, um, a, re- a proper reverence for things that are older and more established than you are. Uh, that's more, you know, directly, you you, you show pietas to the gods, pietas, uh, this is where we get our sense of piety, but uh, pietas to the gods and to the rituals that honor the gods and pietas to, you know your fathers and old people and to the customs that have been handed down to you which you uh, get you pretty... get a kind of
1: prefiguring of in book 23 right because when antilochus yes. when antilochus loses the foot race to ajax and odysseus he makes a speech about how it it seems funny to us because we don't honor older people in this society as much but he makes a speech right. about how old they are and, and, right. and when you read it today, it's like, oh, he's making fun of him for, you know, he saying, well, you won, but uh, don't worry, old man, you'll be dead soon. But that's not what he's saying, right? He's being quite, quite serious because because right. of this uh, virtue.
0: Right. And so this is this is maybe part of the. Uh, I, I think maybe I don't know how if this is intentional or not, and of course we can't can't ask Homer at all. Uh, but the uh, part of the resolution of Achilles' wrath is this. Pietas, because Pietas demands that you look outside yourself, uh, and for whatever reason, Achilles is doing that now. He is at least doing it. And see,
2: Allah, uh, I'll give a mild defense of Achilles on this. I, I think he mm-hmm. actually is. This, I think, this whole thing kicks off again, way, way back in book one, mm-hmm. uh, because he's respecting convention, uh, but he runs That's into a point. situation where there are competing conventions, right? He is supposed to obey the king uh, as the legitimate authority and he has uh, a customary right to these rewards, these gifts you know the, the Bricius that, that he has already received. Uh, and when those two things come into conflict there's there's no way to resolve that. Uh, and now at the end of the book we, we have this resolution uh, both through the funeral games in book 23 and through the uh, the reminder of uh, the reminder of the tradition of the, the household. Right, the, the yeah. reminder of the uh, the the relationship between parents and children, uh, as the uh, as the proper outlet for all of this this conflict that starts up in at the very beginning.
0: Right. So, so it, it's less it's, of a. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. I
2: was gonna say it's it's disproportionate response. I think not just at times. I think kind of all along the way, uh, his uh, his reaction to the breakdown of of custom is uh, overblown, but it's it's not baseless.
0: Right. Yeah, so so rather than a resolution to his wrath, it's more of a fulfillment of his prioritization. Right. Because uh, all, all along he has been been essentially arguing, insofar as Achilles can argue anything, arguing that there are obligations prior to the military ones that this temporary war, <laughs> you know, this war that's going to be over soon, and everybody is keenly aware of that, especially Achilles, since he's. I mean, he's not just burying Patroclus; he's getting a tomb ready for himself. Right. Um. But the uh, there's this. This war is going to be over soon. But these older, prior obligations are they still matter and they're still going to matter. And so we're, I, I guess, in a way, now that Hector is dead, everybody is actually catching up to Achilles in a way. Looked at from that perspective.
2: Right. Which, which doesn't. I mean, it doesn't justify. You know, what what Achilles does. Uh, is it the no. S. Lewis line, uh, that talks about uh, uh and I. I thought of this when you were comparing him with uh, with Virgil. Um, you know, Achilles is the teenager who's yeah. trying to feel his way through a world that he's still learning about, and Aeneas is a man uh, right. who's living in you know the world that's a difficult place to live, but he has all of the tools of a you know full-grown
0: adult to deal to to do so with. Right, and and Lewis connects that explicitly to Pietas. Right. So yeah, Achilles could not articulate any of what we're talking about, but he feels it deeply and he's trying to live according to it um, and gets upset when it doesn't work. Right.
1: Well, if what you guys are saying is true and I think it is, um, I'm completely wrong that mercy is a theme at all, right? Cause this isn't about mercy. This is about, uh, this is about restoring things to the way they're supposed to be. This is, this is about justice. Nobody's getting, uh, nobody's not getting what they don't deserve. I, I, I think uh, <laughs> it's probably the best way to put it. That it, it's not that um it's not that Achilles is going beyond what he should be doing in giving the body back to Priam. It's that he's recognizing that Priam is
2: correct. And yeah, I mean I, I again I, I don't think that's unrelated to mercy.
0: Right. And Achilles he, he does give the body back, but he doesn't just give the body back. I mean, he hosts him for the night. He feeds him. He makes him comfortable. He even, he, and when he when he's offering a place to free him to sleep, he even very pointedly gives him a place where he'll be safe.
2: Right, and he sense says of the-
0: that you know. Right, because you know he keeps saying other Achaean captains keep coming to have conferences of war with him, and of course their priority is going to be to kill the king of Troy since he's made himself so vulnerable. And Achilles actually goes out of his way to protect him, which again is another social obligation, but it is a a structure that maybe creates mercy where a person might not be inclined to show mercy.
2: Hmm. Right.
0: And he, I guess he doesn't have to the, do that. Right.
2: Right. And, and he provides for the funeral, right. Uh, declares the uh, sort of unilaterally declares the 12 day truce so that they right. can properly bury uh, Hector and show the right, right regard and so on, which uh, again, I don't, I don't know if he would have been obligated to go that far. Uh, right. But he, he, he does. Um, so uh, maybe a merciful spirit in a way that he didn't have at the beginning, mm-hmm. uh, in a way that no one showed him at the beginning from his perspective.
0: It's a glimmer of one. He, uh, and I looked, too. I, I think this is significant. I, I'm pretty sure the very last thing Achilles says in the poem is, all will be done, O Priam, as you command. I will hold our attack as long as you require so the guy whose wrath defines the poem ends the poem by for enforcing a ceasefire.
1: Well, his wrath his wrath has been fulfilled. Right, right. You also get I I think the most moving moment in the entire poem, um, and I'm gonna I'll just read it. Uh, this is line 540 or so in Lombardo. Ah, uh, priam says respect the god achilles think of your own father and pity me i am more pitiable i have borne what no man who has walked this earth has ever yet borne. i have kissed the hand of the man who killed my son he spoke and sorrow for his own father welled up in achilles he took priam's hand and gently pushed the old man away the two of them remembered priam huddled in grief at achilles's feet cried and moaned softly for his man slaying hector and achilles cried for his father and for patroclus the sound filled the room. There's a kind of shared grief there. It's not exactly shared because they're grieving for different things, but ultimately they aren't. Ultimately they're grieving for their shared humanity. This, this fact that awaits everybody at the end, which is death. And, and in the, in the Greek understanding, you know, there's really no hope beyond death as we'll see when we read, um, when we read the Odyssey, uh, probably sometime next year, I would imagine, uh, There's really no, nobody has any hope that death is going to be anything other than a giant bummer. And it it awaits all of us. And Achilles realizes now it awaits him because uh, he could have been immortal if he hadn't fought in this war. But he had to fight in the war because somebody had to avenge Patroclus. And, um, you know, here we are. Um, You you have these, these two arch rivals weeping together over the fate that awaits them all.
2: And in the in the next few lines, it's it's not like life is full of sunshine and puppies either, because like Achilles goes on to talk about how Zeus uh, uh, gives everyone either what is it, uh, miseries or blessings mixed with miseries. Uh, in in this life, so not only is death not great, uh, but uh, life isn't all that exciting either. Uh, it's really kind of a grim passage all along.
1: Well, and, and I mean, I, 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 I said this in the very first. Uh, episode of of this show Uh, pagan life is sad i mean there's no there's no joy in it Uh, this is this is chesterton's point i think in the everlasting man i i'll put the i'll put the quote in the show notes as i did in the first episode um but i mean this is this is if if history really is this grim cycle of death and destruction and hope and despair there is no real hope because you're always just going to you're always just going to swing back around toward despair. Right.
0: I actually had that quotation pulled up just now.
1: <laughs> the Chesterton quote.
0: Yeah. Is, is it about, uh, this poem, which is our first poem might very well be our last poem too.
1: No, it's not, but go ahead and read that
0: quote. Okay. Th- this is from the everlasting man. And it's, um, it's stuck with me for a very long time. I actually had it open this morning cause I was going to write a blog post about it, but, uh, how true, uh, Uh, It is – how true it is that this, which is our first poem, might very well be our last poem too. It might well be the last word as well as the first word spoken by man about his mortal lot as seen by merely mortal vision. If the world becomes pagan and perishes, the last man left alive would do well to quote the Iliad and die. Hmm.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, it's bleak. Uh, The the whole poem is bleak and, and it ends on this, this moment that is warm in some ways and moving and empathetic in some ways, but not hopeful, not hopeful. And it, it, it cuts off the, the, the part that everybody hearing the poem initially would have known, which is that Achilles is killed by the weakest, least virtuous man in all of Troy. And Priam, I believe, is slaughtered while clinging to the altar in Troy. Is that correct, or is that Hecuba? One one of the other of them is killed as a suppliant. Suppliant. Suppliant.
2: Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't remember. I know that Hector's wife and kid don't end particularly well. Well, it doesn't. Yes. End, it doesn't
1: end well for really anybody.
0: Right. Just, yeah, just Sam- to me. Well, I, th- I think Priam is killed in an altar. I know Cassandra is raped in a temple. Right, and of course, uh, Asteanax Cassandra Asteanax is brought gets,
1: back, and she has a part to play in the the play uh, Agamemnon.
0: Right, uh, Astyanax gets thrown off the walls.
1: That's Hector's son. Right. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, all of that is left out of the book, which does allow it to end on this this relatively warm note. But nobody hearing this poem would have been unaware of those things. You can you can only you can only forget about that stuff for so long.
2: I mean, if you are in fact the last man and a pagan, and right before you die, you quote the Iliad, you might as well quote the passage about slipping in dung, because the best you're going to get some slapstick humor along the way. <laughs> right, <laughs> right.
0: I will say, I I heard this, and I actually heard this recently from a non-Christian, uh, which was interesting. But the, the Christian idea that you know. Pagan culture and pagan literature and even pagan rites are littered with unaware hopes for redemption that's going to come through Christianity, Uh, you know, ages and ages later. The most famous example is, you know, one of Virgil's eclogues in which he seems to be talking about the coming of a Messiah or some kind of savior, Uh, probably talking about Augustus. But, you know, Um, I've, I've actually heard the ending of the Iliad interpreted almost as kind of a. Homer's realization that it, it's mercy that's going to save the world. But again, he has no reason to hope that that's actually going to happen, uh, especially because the fates are not going to allow that.
1: Right. I, I mean, I, th- I think it, I think it is telling that the poem ends with something that could be at least mistaken for mercy. That might be the closest right. thing you could get in a culture where all the virtues are military virtues.
0: Yes.
2: Right. Well, and, and I mean, like you said, Michael, they, at the end of the poem, yes, the, the readers are going to know what happens. But within the text of the poem, you know, the, the war has temporarily at least stopped. Right? There There is peace on both sides. The wrath of Achilles has been exhausted. Um, Hector is dead, but his body is being properly cared for. I mean, it, it is a it is a resolution uh, and it's it's not necessarily a uh, a bad resolution in the context of the poem itself. Well, you get your you get your happy
1: ending only by cutting it off prematurely, which I, I mean, that is a very, very Greek attitude. Right. The the famous Greek proverb uh, count no man happy until he is dead because you until you <laughs> until you know every detail of how the story ends, you know, you don't know if your life is a tragedy or not. But ultimately, of course, all of them are tragedies. Almost all of them. I guess. I guess some half gods get to uh, get to ascend to uh, Mount Olympus. Doesn't doesn't Heracles go there in some versions of his story? I think so. But I well, mean, and, and the some most of these
2: guys do survive the war and get to go home too.
1: Well, yeah, and, and Odysseus most most famously, right? Although right. almost all of all, all excuse me of Odysseus's men die on that endless journey home and. The Odyssey also ends with with a pretty colossal bummer, which is that he stays home for three four days and then sets sail again. Not to spoil the Odyssey for anyone who hasn't read it, but does he? I
2: don't remember that. I... Yeah,
1: he does. He he. I don't know if it's three days he stays home for, but it's not long. the 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 Odyssey ends with him sailing out again or preparing to sail out again.
2: Man, I don't remember that. i i. I in my mind, that was what Tennyson.
1: I mean, Tennyson does Dante. it. But Tennyson gets it from, from yeah, poem. I I mean, now that I'm saying this, and you guys are you're, you're disagreeing with me, I'm afraid I got you, it wrong. You
2: might be right. It's been a, it's been a long time since I've read The Odyssey. Like in in my mind, the last thing he does is torch his house to purify it. No, no, no there's a there's a whole book after that.
0: Yeah, yeah, they go out to. I remember them going to a. It's been a while since I've read that part too. They go to like a crossroads. The the relatives of the suitors are going to want revenge right
2: and then shows up and
0: yeah there's kind of a deus ex machina which which smooths all that over and that's that's where i remember it ending
1: well i could be wrong but i'm pretty sure i'm pretty sure it ends with him preparing to sail out again because there's just no there's no end to this lifestyle this is this is what's been chosen for him and and the end you you do get is shown to us explicitly in both the Odyssey and the Aeneid, which is the picture of the underworld where in the Odyssey at least we meet Achilles and he's like, hey, uh, screw all that glory stuff. I'd rather be a dirt farmer uh, than be Achilles right. as long as I was alive. So, uh, yeah, you, any, kind of, any kind of happy or at least bittersweet ending you get in the Iliad is, is only because the story is incomplete and, and, you know, all the famous parts are left out. The part everybody thinks is in the Iliad, which is the Trojan horse, isn't even here. Uh, the Achilles heel, him being killed by Paris, that's not here. Priam being slaughtered on the altar, that's not here. I think some of those things show up in the Aeneid. It's been a long time since mm-hmm. I've read the Aeneid, but the Iliad doesn't contain them, and neither
2: does the Odyssey.
0: Right.
2: Yeah, a lot of that stuff is uh, – What's what's the guy's name? Quintus of Smyrna. Uh, It has like a late Roman poet has basically a telling of the rest of the Trojan War.
0: And Ovid covers Achilles' death. I remember that.
2: Right. Interesting. Yeah.
0: It's almost as if um, to compare two radically different warrior cultures on this one point. uh, Imagine it's almost as if um, Beowulf ended with him killing Grindel's mother and, you know, them feasting in the hall uh but if again the audience knows how he's eventually going to die cuz the the a real bummer ending if, is an even bigger bummer ending than the Iliad is Beowulf because Beowulf does die and while he's laying there dead Wiglaf stands over him and talks about how the kingdom is going to collapse now that he's dead
1: right which i mean i think is part of the point of these epics one of the things that's come yeah. up again and again in these episodes and i'm you know i've listened to them all cuz i've edited them all is is that where this poem is being written in an age that has fallen away from previous glory. So you, excuse me, I banged into my microphone trying to turn my pages here. Um, you, you, you have a, a frequent line is somebody lifts a stone that three people couldn't lift. Um, right today, which would be Homer's day, which is probably even more true for us. I, I think in book 24, you actually get Priam blaming that decline, not on human beings, but on God's, because he, he, um, he talks about how all his good sons died in the war and all he's left with is the Parises and the Hellenuses and the Agathons and all these other ones who weren't good enough to die in the war. And he, 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 <laughs> he talks about all the good ones that have left. Uh, that, and he says, Ares killed them, and now all I have left are these petty delinquents, pretty boys and cheats, these dancers, toe-tapping champions, renowned throughout the neighborhood for filching goats. Um, so I... I you you have the, the preview of the fall, not just of Troy, but of the age of heroes altogether. And all we're going to have left, your ancestors, are, are the Parises of the world, the pretty boys and the goat filchers. Hmm. I assume filching means stealing. At least that's what I'm
2: hoping it means. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and there's, yeah. there's even a sense in like in the text of the iliad that that's they're also living in that world right there the previous generation was a lot stronger and tougher and better than they are uh so even uh even achilles and and i think nestor gives us a lot of those those speeches right where it's uh you know in my day uh i would have been out here besieging troy by myself or whatever um uh, and uh, he doesn't say it exactly like that but sort of that idea of uh, even the present generation isn't that great compared to the previous ones and, and I, I think there's a tendency
1: in um, in contemporary art that when when you get that kind of chain of antiquarian feeling there's a critique of antiquarian feeling itself so um, I'm thinking of the Woody Allen movie Midnight in Paris where the, where the Woody Allen stand-in wants to go back to 1920s Paris and when he's magically allowed to do so he he falls in love with a woman played by uh, what's her name Marion Cotillard and she wants to go back to the Belle Epoque and so the the idea is that nobody ever appreciates the area they're in that in, instead you get this endless chain of antiquarianism I don't think that's what's happening in the Iliad I think there's a sense that the further back you go really the better it was that there is actually this social decline um, and there's no critique of people's uh, desire to return to an age where men were men.
2: Right. Yeah. It's it's uh, interesting to read. Uh, uh, Apollonius has a the, the Argonautica is a poem that's set in the generation before this. Uh, so it's Jason and Hercules, and he really plays that up. Um, he He really runs with the no these guys are better uh, than that loser Achilles and uh, you know worthless uh, worthless Paris and so on uh, it's It's interesting to read that kind of side by side with something like the Iliad
1: and, and it fits in neatly with the the general hierarchical structure of Greek society i I mean Some people are born better, and if you're not, there's nothing you can do about it. Oh, and if, by the way, you happen to beat them in a chariot race, you didn't really beat them. They still deserve your prize because they are ontologically better. It's it's Christianity that makes uh, Midnight in Paris uh, possible in the sense that Christianity is way more democratic than the pagan religions it displaces, even if it's not as democratic as 21st century America, for example. I mean, I, I think Christianity still has... Um, in it, uh, a certain understanding of hierarchy, but certainly nothing like the one you get here. Right. right. Hmm. Well, we've got a few minutes left, and, and we have the advantage or the disadvantage of going last. So our <laughs> listeners may be tired of hearing people talk about the Iliad, um, but I... I Maybe the advantage here is we get to have the final word. What are we supposed to make of this poem? Um, I mean, what would the original audience have made of it? What use has it been put to throughout the ages? And, and, I mean, what does it still have to say to us in a culture that's so foreign to its values and its understanding of the world?
2: Oh, I'll let you tackle that one, Jordan. It's a small question.
1: Whew. This is this is how yeah, I always <laughs> ended uh, book book discussions when I was a professor. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I was th- this is one where I was like, "Oh man, speak up, Coil. I got to think about this." Uh yeah, um well, one of the things I was thinking about a minute ago is is I think one thing that to 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 really narrow the question down um and to to try to bridge the gap between our very foreign culture and Homer's um I think Reading the Iliad can give modern Americans a bracing understanding of what it is like to lose Hmm. Um, the uh, you know, there's going to be so much winning. You're going to be tired of winning. Right. Uh, The Iliad is a you know, even the winners of the Iliad kind of lose. Right. That's what that uh, Priam and Achilles weeping together is about. Um, And uh, it it occurred to me, you know, I think the really great epic traditions kind of come out of collapsing societies like you know the the early medieval germans and you know the the disappearing roman empire and of course uh, homer is composing this during the greek dark age long after the society he's describing co- completely collapsed and uh, even lost the ability to write and you'd think of you know the kind of um nostalgia misplaced or not, you know, of maybe uh, Southerners after the Civil
1: War. I was going to ask Brit- you about that.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it brought to mind Wiley, uh, uh not Wiley, uh, W.J. Cash, the mind of the South. Uh, I, th- I think he's the one who argues this, but w- arguing that one of the reasons Southerners, until the 1970s anyway, were different was that they were the only Americans who had lost a war.
1: Do you have a sense um, of whether in the last few decades of the 19th century southern intellectuals uh, and kind of amateur intellectuals turn to the Iliad for comfort and understanding of their situation?
0: I I don't know, but I would not be surprised. Um, I actually just finished reading a uh, like a boys adventure novel from the 1880s. That's uh, based on a, a guy named Thomas Nelson Page, who was he was a novelist and I think a journalist and lawyer. And he was even Woodrow Wilson's ambassador to Italy, which is Interesting. Um, but anyway, it's a boys adventure novel and it, it's mostly just kind of these poignant vignettes of these kids growing up in the Civil War and getting into misadventures and trying to track down deserters with like an old squirrel gun and stuff like that. But uh, the ending is, in, the ending becomes suddenly very poignant. Uh, and it is full for what we would now call a YA novel of literary illusions. And I'm trying to remember if any Homer crops up in there. But I know that Homer undergoes a big popularization in the late 19th century. Um, I would I would not be surprised if it it took off to an extent in kind of southern literary circles, but I, I can't say absolutely for sure.
2: I, I know there's a renaissance of Hannibal studies uh, in uh, in the yeah. south, but I, I don't know about the Iliad.
0: Again, another loser um, who is admired despite having lost. But
1: then you, I you think a, also about similar, the. Oh, you, you also think about the 1970s, a, a time when America is widely perceived to be in decline. Um, right. And I, I, I wonder, I wonder, how much of a cultural revival the Iliad had there.
0: I don't have an. Answer I don't know about re, I don't know about revival. I know that he's uh, he Homer. Uh, I know that the Iliad has undergone reevaluation and reinterpretation. So the different times, you know, it's Achilles who's appealing because he is. Such a triumphant and mighty warrior, and at other times the focus becomes, you know, Hector and the weeping widows and the children who are going to be enslaved. Right. Um, and I, I think that poignancy is something that modern Americans would do well to recover because we've uh, we've had it very, very good for a long time, and uh, this is not historically the norm for most people. Right. I, I don't know. I don't know if that, – that's kind of a grab bag of things I was thinking about, but – um. Um, I, I think uh, this is
1: kind of a grab bag show, Jordan.
0: <laughs> fits right in. But yeah, that, that sense of loss, I've always found that particularly poignant and um, pro- probably owing at least somewhat to being a Southerner. But I see it in other cultures as well. You know, the the British after World War One, um, uh, very, you know, it, basically anybody who is lost can find something of comfort in the Iliad and people who have not lost can Learn and prepare by understanding the Iliad.
1: Yeah, you, you learn how to suffer nobly. Right. And, and we should probably point out, just because this is the society we live in, that um, saying that Southerners are different because they, they have lost a war does not imply a uh, acceptance of their cause as just, right?
0: Right, right. It is talking about the sociological and historical fact of having lost.
1: So we're not we're not saying that we should return to a uh, pre Civil War South or anything like that. Just that there's something in the Southern psyche, if you want to think about it that way, that right. that understands defeat.
0: Yeah, and it's especially defeat at the hands of an enemy that invades and plunders you. Because um, I mean, we we pretty much lost Vietnam, but it wasn't like the Viet Cong came and jacked up our cities. Right. Uh, where 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 uh, Troy of course is in ashes after the events of the Iliad. Jordan, you write historical
2: fiction. That's got to be your next book.
0: What's that? Like, oh,
2: back yeah, uh, like on San Francisco. <laughs> <laughs> I would I would read the heck out of that.
0: I did just write one about Georgia being destroyed during 1865, um, but it's it's not really about that exactly. I,
2: I actually have a much more uh, lowbrow question if we're if we're done with the, uh, the the deep meaningful stuff oh, but before you before <laughs> you get there i I would suggest that maybe an interesting thing
1: for somebody to write if it hasn't already been written would be hmm how to, how to put this a a retelling of this story from one of the Trojan slaves' perspective hmm but but because i mean yeah the 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 truth is the um the south was in some ways destroyed by the north but also um there's some people who probably weren't entirely sad to see that happen in the south you know
0: right
1: so i i would be interested in knowing if anybody has if anybody has thought about this story from the perspective of the people who maybe weren't terribly happy in troy i don't know
2: you' hmm. so, uh, like in Uncle Tom's cabin, but set in Troy,
1: yeah, something like that or, or you know there's uh-huh. there's a there's a series of feminist rewritings of of stories like this, and it would be interesting it would be interesting to see that somebody who lives in a society that uh where they're not on top they're not priam and yet um have that society destroyed around them i i i i think that would be interesting, and certainly this this yeah. the story itself is rich enough to support that kind of reading.
0: Yeah, you kind of you get a little bit of that with uh, is it Aeschylus' Agamemnon because uh, Cassandra is taken into slavery, but of course she's she's a Trojan princess, she's royalty, uh, so that's a little bit different. Yeah, one story yeah. I've actually been considering for my own projects, but it's it's you know way off in the future. There's a he's not mentioned in the Iliad, so it's probably not original. the story is probably not original to Homer. But uh, there's you – know, the Troja- it's not just the Trojans who are fighting on the Trojan side. There's loads and loads of allies who come in, and uh, among them is a guy mentioned in the Aeneid uh, by the name of Choroibos or Caribus. Uh And he, along with somebody who is mentioned in the Iliad and I believe gets killed by Patroclus, uh, he comes basically um, on the understanding that if he assists the Trojans, helps them beat the Greeks, he will get to marry Cassandra um which oh, which right, yeah. he's mentioned uh, yeah and he he's mentioned very briefly in the uh in the Aeneid and the flashback in which Aeneas is describing the fall of Troy and uh is killed but acquits himself really well trying to defend some of the people in the streets um which really jumped out at me the last time I read the Aeneid and so that's kind of snagged in the story building part of my brain um there there is something
1: similar to that in um in this poem if it's not him directly because there's I, we've talked about it in a previous episode there's a guy who gets mocked for being a uh, being a mercenary and and the only reason he does it is because he wants to marry one of priam's daughters and i think it's cassandra
0: yes uh it's yeah he's let me see is it eurypylus
1: yeah maybe i don't know
0: there, there is a guy in in the Aeneid who or excuse me the Iliad who is mentioned as trying to fight in order to win Cassandra's hand and gets killed
1: yeah and the Greeks mock him for right. for that but I can't remember what show we talked about it in or even if I was part of that or anyway yeah yeah it's that that's another interesting perspective and and just because you get primarily the uh, the Greek side of this you don't get that perspective and, and right yeah so the, the Aeneid will, will give, you, give us some more of what the Trojans and their allies think about things.
0: Definitely. And Chesterton, um, to go back to Chesterton, he, he elsewhere in The, the Everlasting Man, he, he's pretty firmly convinced that something that makes Homer unique and, and long-lasting is the fact that he sympathizes with the losers, probably even prefers the side of the losers to those who are going to eventually win, especially uh, ending on the note that the Iliad does.
1: Well, it's certainly hard, I think, for modern readers to side with Achilles over Hector. Yes. And again, I don't know if that's an issue of shifting values, but I I find Achilles less unattractive than I have previous times I've read the Iliad, but I certainly still prefer Hector.
0: Right. Well, even beyond mercy, humility is not a Greek virtue either.
1: Oh, absolutely not. It's Uh, it's openly a vice.
0: Right. There there's there's a level on which all of the heroes of the Iliad are pretty repulsive. I'm sorry, Coyle, were you about to say something?
2: Oh, uh yeah, just in in response to uh Michael's original question, uh I think a, a good takeaway is thinking about dealing with anger. Right. Uh uh what is uh what is the appropriate way and means in which to exercise wrath, uh if it if it must be exercised? Uh and uh uh I, I don't know uh I don't know what what uh this would look like but uh presumably Achilles is, is not the ideal model for that um again even if there is some uh some legitimate basis for his wrath uh, but I, I suspect the answer is not just to go on YouTube and comment a lot uh but it uh, it's it's something other than what moderns are doing with it, but maybe not what Achilles did with it either so Yeah, I'm not I'm not sure how useful the Iliad is for that in the modern world, but I I feel like that's something that at least ought to be thought about. And then uh, I did I did have a a very lowbrow question that I was kind of thinking through this morning. Uh, If we have to pair the Christian humanists up with someone in the Iliad, who are they going to be?
1: (laughs) oh gosh are you talking about everybody on the network or just me no no no, just
2: just just even nathan and danny and uh uh, david huh well i'm gonna let you guys answer
1: this question i don't feel like i have a a say in it
2: i guess i had a very lowbrow question but Mm -hmm. one that i spent probably more time than i ought to have thinking about
0: i can see david is kind of an odysseus
2: Oh yes, yeah, see, I was thinking David is kind of a Nestor.
1: David would yeah, definitely yeah, think of better. himself as Nestor because uh, certainly in previous episodes of this series, he has defended Nestor as the only the only reasonable, likable character in the entire poem. <laughs> uh,
2: and I could see Nathan as kind of an Odysseus.
0: Yeah, that's better. The man of many ways.
2: And uh, uh, Michael, will you be offended if I call you an Achilles? Achilles, really? Jeez. Yes, I will. Do you think I'm that petulant? No, no. Uh, you have spoken of yourself as kind of moody.
1: I guess that's true. I, I, I do. I have sat and pouted in many a tent. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> well, with that, I think we can probably uh, bring our discussion of the Iliad to a close. Um, I, you know, we've spent now eleven weeks talking about uh this poem and I'm I'm I hope our listeners have enjoyed it. I I'm thankful that they, those of you who have stuck with it. It's hard to tell because, you know, we're recording all of these before we release any of these. So, this could be the most popular podcast in history or uh it could be something that nobody listens to at all. So, yeah, if you are listening, we appreciate it. We'll be back in um at least a few weeks. I don't we don't know how long it'll be. It could be uh months, it could be 3 or 4 weeks. I don't know. Just uh keep subscribing to this channel and you'll get it when it releases. But we'll be talking about the uh the Republic in ten episodes, I believe. Uh Coyle, I hope your co host uh Ed Song will be leading some of those. Certainly you and he uh would be the ones most equipped to talk about political philosophy.
2: Uh you you will have to ask Ed about that. Yeah well
1: maybe you'll lead some too. Uh
2: depends on when we record.
1: Yeah. Well uh listeners do do stay tuned for those episodes eventually uh and uh we hope we hope those go as well as the iliad episodes have uh guys thanks for wrapping things up with me
2: thanks for having me yeah thanks for having us on
1: core curriculum is a production of the christian humanist radio network our press liaison is christian philippic thanks for listening